This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? I'm doing well. How's it going? Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend, where we blend. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Yeah, today we have a special guest. His name is Eric Berry. Many of you may know him as the founder of CodeFund. And we wanted to pull him in and talk about CodeFund a little bit. It's a bit self-serving since we're all CodeFund employees, but we thought it would be interesting to give everyone a little background on how the company was founded, what its mission is, those sorts of things. And then uh, just kind of get into uh, Eric's line of thinking about the company and then about running a business and kind of not spending as much time in the code. Like, I know that's been difficult. So we're going to talk about all those things. Welcome, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining. I would, I'm really curious, and I kind of know the story here, but I would love for others to hear the story of how you found the inspiration for CodeFund as a company. Uh, so for, for the listeners, Nate and I are longtime friends. We've been friends for very long. Nate used to be my boss at a previous company, and then we were partners, or we were working together at a company prior to that. And while we were working at this, the most recent company prior to CodeFund, you and I, we were talking about like, how can we create some sort of side project that might be able to generate some passive revenue? I think that's a common thought amongst developers, especially those who are maybe a little bit further down the line that realize we've been building futures for everybody else except for ourselves. So I think you and I, we went over a bunch of different ideas and we had a, a bunch of false starts. And I remember driving to work and my brother, who I talked to a lot, he talks about using every opportunity or every advantage that you have. And I knew that there were a couple of advantages that I had, and I was thinking about it. One of them is I'm a coder. And then the other one is that I have worked for marketing teams and in marketing departments for the last possibly seven or eight years. And so I knew all about lead gen. I knew about you know, the marketing side of things and, and mildly into the advertising side. But as I was driving to work that day, I was putting all that together. And the other thing, I'd recently read an article about one of the GitHub projects that was abandoned because it was, uh, they weren't paid. So I kind of took all those three things together and I thought to myself, well, you know, it's, it's actually a super simple problem to solve. And the, the solution that, that I had come up with at that time is open source developers have a unique value prop that they can provide to companies and that it's worth money, which is an audience. So these open source projects, they start getting an audience and a lot of other developers reach out to them and, and start reading their docs and getting involved. And so there's a community that's built. Well, if you want to get funding to, to these projects, you got to look for where the money can come from. Up to that point, the majority of funding for open source came through donations. So stuff like, you know, Patreon or at the time there was a Git Tip and Gratipay and all of that stuff. And I think Git Tip is Gratipay actually, but a lot of that stuff was going on. However, it frustrated me because I looked at the idea of developers donating to other developers who are also asking for money and it was as silly to me as, as a bunch of developers sitting in a room passing a dollar bill around in a circle because that's really all it was. It wasn't bringing in new money. It was just repurposing money that was already in there. I thought, well, if we really want to tap into some big money and really make an impact in the community, we should look to see where the big money is. And some of the biggest budgets that we've seen is in, in marketing and advertising. So much so that there are several companies out there that have, you know, million dollar budgets per year in advertising. And at the time they were putting their money into, you know, Facebook and Google and, and carbon ads and a lot of these different types of ad networks that were effective, but not very ethical. And so the approach that I took was, well, why don't we just say, we're going to put an ad or a, a sponsorship directly under the GitHub readme. 
And when we do that, every time anybody clicks on that, that link, that project would get a dollar. And then we would sell that link for a little bit over a dollar. So we would make a little bit of money, but they would really get the majority of the money. And so I think you and I, we hammered over this for a while. And I created this little example of generating a dynamic SVG and placing that as an image tag on GitHub. So we would have people put it towards the top of their GitHub readme. It would look very much like the documentation. It looks similar enough not to be distracting, but different enough not to be deceiving. And it worked really, really well. Nate, I believe you and I started it back in June of 2017. And by December of 2017, we had over 1,600 open source projects that we were funding. It just exploded. But by the way, back then, it wasn't called CodeFund. It was called Code Sponsor. And it was uh, renamed in 2018 to CodeFund because basically, long story short, GitHub kicked us off. And so we had to repurpose the application to focus more on websites versus repositories. Had you, had you already been thinking about getting onto regular websites outside of repos before GitHub kind of put a, a halt to code sponsor? No, no. And the reason is, is that if uh, I was never interested in making an impact with very few people, ironically, that's what it turned out to be. We're impacting very few lives in a very good way, but we're not impacting enough people yet. The idea of getting on GitHub and having it as seamless as you just sign up with GitHub on Code Sponsor, and then it generates these snippets for your different repos, and it's just automatic. It worked insanely well. The other thing is that there was a, a huge benefit for the advertisers because, one, they couldn't get on GitHub, and two, if you advertise on GitHub, it's the purest sense of a developer, the purest type of developer going to a project and if that project matches the type of audience or generates a type of audience that these advertisers are looking for, they get really, really, really highly targeted ads to these developers at a minimum cost. So we found that some companies are like, we can't pay you enough. Just give us more, give us more, give us more. Part of our promise in that, that you and I agreed on is like, we don't want to, for us to play in the playground with developers, we can't have it be tracking. We can't have any type of unethical practice. So that really limited the scope of what we could do. And once GitHub came in and said, you're out, it was pretty scary. In fact, it was quite traumatic for me. To answer your question, kind of long roundabout way, the reason we got into websites was because our publishers, the developers who, who were getting paid, wanted to know, hey, can we also put this on our website? And so when they started asking that, we essentially bolted on a way to piggyback off of our current ad system to do that. And it worked fairly well. But at the end of the day, I think those websites that signed on are the only ones that stuck around into 2018. So we went from 1,600 developers that we were helping all the way down to, I don't know, uh, 20. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because not every open source project is savvy enough to stand up a marketing project, right? And some of them aren't even popular enough to justify that. Or, I mean, people working on those things may be spread too thin to bother with standing up a site to kind of do self-promotion for their project. One thing that is interesting to me, and I want to I just kind of get some background in terms of your experience, because I think CodeFund has played a, a pretty significant role in helping developers understand that it's okay to make money off of their work. I mean, that's what the companies we work for do. But, but for some reason, developers historically have had this aversion to making money, especially from our open source work. On the same hand, we also complain about you know, the time that it takes away from our lives and families and the burnout that can result and all of those sorts of things. So what type of resistance did you have at the beginning from the developers that you were pitching this to? I was surprised on how hard it was to sell to developers. I remember having a conversation with, with a very prominent developer who created a very popular library with Node. And I asked him, I said, do you want to try this out? We have money. We're, I think we can make this happen, but I need some bigger projects to support. 
And he flat out said no. He he didn't like the idea of getting paid for contributions to the community because he said it would devalue what they were trying to pull off or what he was trying to do. It wasn't about the money to him. But I think more so at that time, it was very much a social stigma or a stigma within the developer community. Like, you don't get paid for open source. That's a whole idea of open source. It's free. But what I've learned over the last few years and by participating with the Sustain organization, being a, you know, a part of the Open Collective organization, is that open source today is not what it was 10 years ago. When the stigma started coming out, it was way back when open source was more of, hey, we're going to be the noble, we're going to do the noble thing and, and make our code open source. But it, it was never heavily depended upon at that time. Nowadays, it's nearly impossible to build an application without open source. It's like saying, I'm going to put together a car, but I'm going to make every part. I'm going to create every screw on a CNC machine. I'm going to create every little thing. And that's just the time it would take and the resources it would take are nearly impossible. So the applications that we see today, like look at Slack, for example, couldn't have existed 10 years ago because there wasn't enough manpower to do so. I've given talks on this before, and I, and I understand this really well. So the irony of it is that open source originally was thought of as a way to contribute to the community, and, and it still is, but, but now the pressure being put back on those developers is so strong to keep it up and running that it does cause burnout. It causes heartache. There's a cost involved. It's a time cost that they could easily be making money elsewhere if they weren't spending time on these projects. So that's how I look at it. And I think that the efforts of the Sustain organization, that we've had three events so far. The first one was in 2017 at the GitHub corporate office. And it was about 100 people that got together and talked about open source and the current state of open source. And they determined at the time that funding is actually a core part of the sustainability of open source. And then over the next couple of years, I helped coordinate the other summits these sustained summits. And you can find out about this at sustainoss.org. At these summits, we would go further and further into the discussion of how has open source changed? How do we need to view it? And how can we make it more sustainable? And that's really the core of it is sustaining open source. That's why CodeFund exists. That's why we built it. I hope that answers your question. I, I don't even remember the question, actually. <laughs> no, it totally does. So, I mean, if you condensed CodeFund's mission down to an elevator pitch, what would it be? How would you summarize it? CodeFund is an ethical advertising platform that is built to generate passive recurring revenue to open source developers, bloggers, and app builders. And we do so in, a, in an ethical, non-tracking, completely open manner. Nice. Yeah. I would 100% agree with that. I'm curious, what were the signs that you guys realized that it was time to bring in like more people, I guess, specifically on the code side. Because I, I, I thought about this from a personal standpoint. Like if I was making a company, who are the first people I would hire? And I immediately think of, okay, well, people who aren't like me, people who can do things that I can't do or don't want to do or have no interest in doing. And I'm just curious, like at what point or what was kind of the motivating factor to kind of bring in someone else? To answer that, I need to give you a little bit more of the history behind it. Originally, it was Nate and I. I think I did most of the code, but Nate did most of the important code. And that's kind of the dynamic that we have. I'm, I'm a really good filler and Nate's the, you know, the main course. But when GitHub said get off of GitHub, I kind of went into a little bit of a tailspin. To give you a little bit of a background and to be open, I, I like probably the majority of our listeners have depression and anxiety, and it does take a heavy, heavy toll. And we worked for a company at that time that was not very fair, favorable to developers. So we, were, we were very mistreated, and it was, it was an unfortunate situation. So, you know, when you build something on the side and it starts taking off, you get so excited and you put so much of yourself into it. And then if somebody in authority comes down and says, hey, you can't do this anymore, it triggered basically a life reset for me. So I hit the reset button. I quit my job and I shut down Code Sponsor at the time. And I actually sold it to a buddy for a dollar. And I got a job with Gitcoin. 
So I joined Gitcoin back in January of 2018. When I joined, it, there was the idea of like, I don't know what you're going to work on, but your values and my values are very similar. So we're going to bring you in. For background, Gitcoin is a, a, a Python. Their whole code base is in Python. So I came in and I, I was talking to Kevin, who's the founder of Gitcoin. And I said, where should I work? And he said, well, I think you should bring back code sponsor. So I reached out to my buddy who I sold it for and I bought it back from him. And then we decided, okay, we're going to bring this back. But I rewrote it and I rewrote it in Rails and it was moderately okay. But I quickly realized that doing this is a full-time job where you're, you know, it's doing it on a part-time side project. There's not as much pressure, I think, when you do that because you still have income coming in. Now, there is pressure outside because now you've basically doubled your workload. But the importance of that workload on the side is not nearly as important as when you have a company that's relying on the success of this product. So when I brought CodeSponsor back in, I found that doing everything from sales to marketing to account management to finance to you know the code, all of that stuff, it became a bit much for me. So I think back in April of 2018, I made my first hire. And when I hired, I hired thinking, I'm going to hire somebody who's so much smarter than I am, who knows everything that we need to know. And at the time, Elixir was taking off. So I thought, okay, I got to find an Elixir developer to rewrite this thing in Elixir. And so I did. And we hired him. And it ended up being a terrible, terrible experience. The, the person that we hired had decided to write their own framework on top of Phoenix. And so it was so convoluted that basically you had to be him to know how it worked. And it was a super frustrating time for me. So that was my first hire experience that lasted for about six months. And then I was able to hire Nate back in October of 2018. Yeah, so essentially taking other roles within the company from sales to customer support, that sort of thing, balancing the, the network, bringing in new publishers and, and also making sales to advertisers, all of that responsibility, as well as the vision and typical CEO type roles, all, all of that responsibility was on your shoulders and not so much the code anymore at that stage. It was. And, and had I not had Kevin there to cheerlead me on and like, pull me off the edge, I probably would have shut down CodeFund three or four times during that year because I just, I, I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. I, I'm really curious to hear a little bit about the dynamic between CodeFund and Gitcoin as you see it and the, you know, the shared mission between the companies and, you know, how do you see that relationship and, and tell us what Gitcoin actually is and what they do. Sure. Yeah. To, to time travel again, I, I love talking about the past because so old in the past is the glory days, right? <laughs> Not as old as you, Nate. You're, you're a lot older than I. For those okay. listening, that's a constant <laughs> joke that we, we play on, Nate. So when I was going through the process of building Code Sponsor and everything, one of the issues that I ran into at the time was paying people. Now, Logistically, I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but logistically paying a thousand people in one month within a three-day period is a really difficult thing to do. Really, 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 really hard. I would pay people via PayPal and it was just, it was tricky. It was a tricky, tricky thing to do. So I saw a tweet by Kevin about this thing called Gitcoin and the idea behind that is to fund open source as well. Now, Gitcoin is quite a popular project now. It's a suite of tools that helps fund open source. Some of those tools might be bounties. So there are bounties on GitHub where uh, I can take some money and say, I will pay to have this issue done. And then that's broadcast out to the Gitcoin network. And then we get developers coming in to work on it. And then once it's complete and approved, they get paid. Other products in that suite is, for example, grants. So they have a grant program that's, that's really exploded. And also hackathons. They do a lot of hackathons. So all of this is in an effort to generate funding for open source, give developers jobs, make it so that you, know, you can work remotely without having to have a boss. But the core of it is this whole infrastructure is built on top of Ethereum, the blockchain. And 
at the time I had no idea what Ethereum is, but I thought to myself, wow, I wonder if I can use what he's talking about to pay all these people programmatically without having to spend a week doing it. We talked about it. And, and at that time we started getting to know each other a little bit more and we vetted each other out and understood like, well, where's your values? Where's my values? And do they match? And once they matched, I, you know, it, it seemed like a pretty obvious decision to move to Gitcoin once I was done with code sponsor. I'm curious, you know, as you shifted away from development and took all those other responsibilities, you know, I've, I've watched you in those roles and have tremendous respect and admiration for your ability to do so many things and wear so many hats. Can you talk to like the, the different types of, I don't know, the, the dopamine hits, the, you know, the, the wins that you feel in those other roles as compared to development? And then even talk to you know, whether or not you've missed development and I don't know, what's, what's that experience been like for you? So it's pretty interesting. My dad's a salesman. I grew up with him being a salesman and he got really excited when he got big sales. In fact, during this call, I saw a Slack message come in. That's a notification that one of the advertisers that we've been pursuing for three years now finally says, Hey, we're interested. So those types of experiences really do trigger like a strong dopamine hit. And I think that you got to have a certain amount of masochistic personality to be an entrepreneur, I think, which is why I'm slowly backing out of that because I don't think I have that. Going from a full-time developer to everything but was a really hard transition. As a developer, it's really easy for you to know I, I did something. I fixed a bug. I shipped some code. I did reviews. You know, you can quantify and graph out your contributions. And it's really, you know, I think all of us have gone home on days where we're like, wow, today has been a great day because I got so much done and it felt great. And I shipped this thing that I've been working on for two weeks and it's fantastic. It's harder to do that when in a reactionary environment such as running a business. So for me, my day-to-day for a good two years was, do we have enough money coming in for today? Are the numbers trending properly? Are we in communication at the right times with our advertisers? Are we being fair with our publishers and making sure that they get paid properly and on time? Do we have you know, money in the bank to make this happen? It, all, all this stuff, like, and, and none of it is ever it's never shipped. There's no shipping involved when you are running a company because you're on the ship, right? So it requires somebody who can really do well with that. I appreciate your compliment. I think that what I've learned to do over the years is purely by requirement. Like I had to, I had to learn how to do a a two minute elevator pitch. I had to learn how to talk to different personalities in sales. I had to learn how to send money out to all these people. I, like I had to, there was no choice and I had nobody else that I could go to to do it. Sure, there are exciting times when you're doing that. Like there's super exciting times when you make a huge sale. Like, oh, I just brought in $30,000 in this one sale. This is fantastic. But that comes and goes so rarely or so, you know, it's just, it's just not something that you can say, I'm working towards this and, and I hit the goal. Maybe on sales a little bit, but like finance and, and account management, like it's really, really hard. So I used to have the idea that developers are the most important people in the company. And I learned that that is absolutely not the case. In fact, I kind of believe that developers, and I apologize if I say this, but developers are probably some of the most replaceable people in the company because developers are all learning the same techniques. They're all reading from the same books, learning from the same languages. And if you're, you know, if we need to get other developers, it's, there's a line of people that you can typically find. Now it's really hard to find good people, but man, for 15 years, I just thought that I was, I was all that. And, and when you run a company and you realize how much is involved in running a company, you start to understand, oh, this is actually a very small part of the success of of this company. The salespeople are just as important as the developers. The account managers are just as important as the salespeople. The finance is absolutely critical. And you don't think about that as a developer because as a mind worker, 
I think that all of us are like an artist in a way, right? We're all artistic in a way. Andrew, I think you're one of the best programmers I know, and you're very artistic in your code and the way you approach things. Nate, you're a freaking code god. I'm like, I can't replace either of you properly for sure, nor would I, nor do I have the authority either, (laughs) to be honest. But it's been an eye-opening and a very humbling experience over the past few years to realize I've kind of been a dick at previous companies because I thought that I was more important than I probably was. And it's interesting. Also, I, I think I took advantage of the quality of life that developers have. With developers, we, we get paid more. We get treated better. We get better benefits. We get all of these things because these companies are trying to attract the best talent there is. Rightly so, right? It's hard to attract the best talent. So now... I've gone through this phase and, and, and to give everybody a little bit more background with CodeFund, I've actually stepped down as being the lead of CodeFund and I handed it off to Nate, who was one of, you know, he was the original co-founder with me on it simply because I can't do it anymore. I've hit this limit. I've hit this cap of, I cannot keep going down this path and stay healthy and, and all of that. But it's been an interesting transition going back into code, right? I got a, a very hard reminder of that code is hard right? It's a hard thing to do. Maybe to temper that a little bit, I would say that operating a business requires everyone. It's a team sport. Like yes. you're not, you're not going to get there with just one role and putting too much emphasis on that particular role, whether it be sales or development or whatever, then the company is not going to be well balanced and it's going to make it that much more difficult to operate successfully. I agree hundred percent, but in most companies, there's a hierarchy. There's You know, like, for example, you reported to me and I reported to Kevin and Kevin reported to somebody else. And there's always this hierarchy, right? And the higher up the hierarchy, the more they have to worry. The more, one, they're probably paid more and they probably have more equity, but they also have to worry more because there's nobody above them to worry. And when you are in this position where there's nobody above you to worry, all of a sudden, everything is important and everything matters. And it's really, really hard. And I think that's part of the joy of being a programmer in a company is you don't have to worry about everything. Andrew, you don't have to worry about, you know, sales or you don't have to worry about, you know, our publishers getting paid. All you have to worry about is the code being built, maintained and, and all of that. And there's a certain piece that comes from that where you don't have to think about everything. And I've found that that is the Zen that I've been slowly moving back towards. And I, I anyway, it, it's, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just something that's been very heavy on my mind lately and has actually led to, you know, the handoff of leadership to Nate. Yeah, I will say I'm a bit spoiled in the sense that you know, I've got a, a good example in you to look towards, you know, the historical things that have happened. But we've also built a team to handle a lot of these things as well that I can delegate more things than you were able to do in the early days, especially. It is interesting about the knowledge work uh, piece because I think that's, you know, that's part of the role of a project manager or a product owner in essence is to essentially protect those knowledge workers so that they can focus and do the deep work because that's when you're going to get the best work. If you can, if you can essentially allow them to put the blinders on and not worry about those things, then you're going to get the best out of them. And that's ideal in a larger company or a more established company, but it's very difficult to make happen in a startup. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, the winds kind of come and go. They're a bit more fleeting, I would guess, sounds like. Have you been able, as you've gotten more into the code, are you starting to experience some of that that knowledge work, the dopamine hit from shipping code? Oh, 100%. 100%. It's been an interesting experience because I think I've had a few false starts as well. And I realize, you know, I'm pushing to this PR that's slowly building and building and becoming a complete mess. I'm like, oh, I'm it's a really bad PR and I should probably not do this. <laughs> <laughs> the review review time is going to be fun, Andrew. Well, the thing is, is that as you know, when you're running a company and you're running this project and I'm the biggest user of CodeFund, right? I'm in CodeFund more than anybody else. I know every quirk. I know every aspect of this project. I know every aspect of, the, of how it works and, and everything. And before... I used to be able to just jump in and oh, I'm going to make this change. I'm going to add this, remove this, whatever I might do. That went away the bigger we got and the more money we brought in, that slowly went away. And so when I got back into the code, it's like, oh, I've got all of these things that I've just been waiting to do. 
But then you get caught up and like, okay, well, I'm going to scope creep this thing in and just think this. In. Oh, actually, yeah, I'm going to scope creep this thing in. I'm going to scope creep this thing in. So what I have in this PR that I've been working on is probably three separate PRs that really should be handled separately. But as far as the rush goes, yeah, absolutely. You know, developing is a very hard thing to do. Software development is extremely difficult, but it's probably one of the most rewarding things to do. You can be down at the end of the day, your brain hurts because you're thinking so hard and you're like, wow, what a great day. You can measure your impact and measuring impact, I think is the biggest thing. It's really hard. For example, we have an employee, his name is Justin Dorfman. He is probably, probably the most organized and the most skilled person I know as far as task management. I've never seen anybody better. How do you measure his success? It's a lot harder because what he's doing is basically keeping the lights on. He's running our podcast network. What you're listening to right now is run by Justin Dorfman within CodeFund. But how do you measure that? You know, it's so much harder. And I think that that's a little bit unfair to the rest of those in the company because developers come out shining. Like, for example, Nate, I remember you and I, we used to code in our previous company. Somebody would mention, oh, I wish it did this. And then you and I were like, oh, we're going to go do that. We're going to be the hero. And, and we were. And we were hit the hero so many times with them. And that, I think that hero mentality led people to think that our value was more important to others, at least maybe led me to think that our value was more important. But now I look at Justin Dorfman, I'm like, oh my gosh, how, uh, he's way more valuable than I am. But how do you measure that? How, how, how does that come out? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's especially hard if you've been in the development space. Because like you're saying, you do get this iterative improvement essentially every day, even if you don't complete your tasks. Of course, there are bad days too. But I mean, we're generally as developers making this iterative progress and the app is getting a little better every time or the library or whatever it is you're working on gets a little better every time you touch it, right? Until it turns into a, a big mess. And then, and then we throw it away and say, we're going to do it right this time right? yeah. <laughs> and, and start clean. But we do get that, that iterative progress every day. And so you do feel like you're progressing you know, on this you're making your way up the hill. You're conquering it, right? And yeah. and I, yeah, in other roles, it's a little less so. It's a little more like the the day to day chores that just have to be taken care of constantly. Like tomorrow, you you sometimes you just start over and you do the same thing again, right? And it's it, you don't get the same you know the highs from from the output of that effort. Like they're there, but it's different, right? Right. And I, there's also a difference between the highs that the developer experiences, I believe. Like, I'm going to pick on you, Andrew, for a little bit. Andrew, within CodeFund, is the glue that keeps our code together. Andrew has come in and really just said, I'm going to own the, the bugs, own making sure that things work. The problem with that for Andrew, and I'm going to speak for you and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you're doing glue stuff or you're doing maintenance stuff, the outcome is not as rewarding. You don't feel that same high that you feel when you ship a new feature. And I think that that's why a lot of developers, there's different, different types of developers that work for different types of companies. So for example, if you know IBM, you go work for IBM, well, you're, you, you probably don't care too much to chase that dopamine high when you launch new stuff. You're more like, I want the security and safety of, of a large company. When you join a startup like Andrew has, there's an expectation there to be very impactful. You know, you're one of the few developers, you're highly impactful, you're making a big difference. And I think that that's critical to make sure that developers in any startup environment are always involved in some fashion on a large project or a large deliverable. If not, I just see, you know, the, the desire going away and I can have, I can feel like I'm more impactful over here than I am here. Andrew, how accurate is that? Would you say? I think it's, it's accurate. I do have a tendency of like, I'll create a problem. So I think that's the only part you kind of missed. Like, yes, like I, I never really thought of myself like that before, honestly. But if I'm getting bored, like I will make something because yeah. like I thrive on chaos. And that's one of the reasons I kind of like, I didn't think code one was chaotic, but like my, the job I had, prior to leaving, I mean, it was cushy. I was like quickly, it was my first job, but I was quickly ascending and I wasn't being challenged as much. And 
you know, this and that. And I felt less impactful and I was getting bored. And even though like they were offering me, like I was getting paid more and more and like my future there was very bright. I didn't have like the environment that I could truly thrive and be happy on. And which led, you know, to issues personally. But that's why when I I joined CodeFund, like I would love like the chaotic. It's not chaotic when you think of the word chaos, but like, you know, one second you're doing this thing and all of a sudden you're doing something else. And like, I'm the one who's putting out the fires a lot, but I, I thrive in that chaos. So I don't know, glue, that's a good word for it. I never really thought about it, but yeah. I mean, there's an opportunity to wear more hats, to work on strategic initiatives. Uh, you're touching more areas of the code and your sense of ownership over all of it is much different in a startup. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. And I mean, that's the reason I came to CodeFund was to get more experience because at my last job, I was making internal apps and I was dealing with internal BS. And I did. I thought I was, I thought I was the shit. I was like strutting around, killing it. And they treated me like that because I was doing very, very well. And I, but when I started getting treated like that, I got bored. Like I, I need, I need to be challenged. I need there to be something I can't do, and I need someone to be like berating me to get things done. Because, like I said, I, I thrive in the chaos. And my boss tried to talk me out of leaving for like two hours before, and which the worst part was like the day before we we were getting beers, and he was telling me like how my future was so bright at the company, and I was like, oh, might not be so bright tomorrow, <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, I a lot of my friends thought I was an idiot for taking the job because, like I said, I was on like fast track to like a lot of money. But I was like, I'm not, I'm not happy here anymore. I, I need, I need the thing that no one else wants. I, I need the chaos. I need the disruption. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you feel like you've you've been able to achieve some of that that growth or 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 whatever it was that you were looking for? Yeah, I kind of doubt I would still be at that company because I kind of had like. Like that was like in my mind, like a year, like I'll spend a year or two here. I'll get like whatever credentials I need and then I'll move on, get a better job and keep going. And I don't feel that way. Like at CodeFund, like I don't, I don't think like, oh, like, yeah, in like a year I'll be looking for like another thing to do. Like, it's like, this is like, this is like the perfect environment for me to thrive. And I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I have gained a massive amount of skill and experience. And it's kind of funny when you were saying earlier about, you know, almost looking down on the marketers and stuff like that, because I totally did at my last company. But as soon as I came into CodeFund, Justin is the freaking dude. Like that dude astounds me. Like that was like, Justin was like a turning point. You were a turning point. I already knew Nate. When people asked me why I was going to leave the last company, I was like, because I found like a mentor. Like I need, I need more. Like I'm not, I'm at the point now where I'm like, not at the, I'm obviously not at the top, but like, they're like, oh yeah, you're good. Like just go like mindlessly grind on features for, you know, the next 10 years or whatever. And I had like my coworker that sat beside me, he was like that. Like he was totally, totally cool to like die there. And I, I just wasn't like, and yeah. So I, I left there to work with Nate, work with you, new experience. And I, couldn't be happier. I think I've, it's definitely been, I, I, I don't know where I would be without it. Like it definitely not here. No, that's great. I love, I love hearing that. I'm curious. It sounded like you may have hit a couple of interesting barriers as you were getting back into code, Eric. Can you touch on that? You said you rediscovered that code can be hard too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing, it's like when you ride a bike or whatever, whatever you've been doing for so long, and you stop doing it for a, for a significant amount of time, and and as time passes, technology changes, updates. As time passes, you start losing some some of you know your natural ability there, your 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 trained ability. And I found that coming back in into the code is it's been really it's been really challenging. I haven't had to use this part of my brain in a while. That's one of the things. The other thing is, you know, I. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, I guess, big reset buttons. And so I decided, you know what? During this whole COVID storm thing, I'm just going to treat myself and I'm going to get me 
like a really nice Mac Pro. And then I looked at the Mac Pro prices and I'm like, I am not going to get myself a Mac Pro. <laughs> I've been looking at the Mac Pro prices too. And I'm, oh yeah, they're insane. Yeah, I'd love, I would love a new one, but I'm like, I don't know, maybe a Mac Mini. Right. And so then I started looking in, into Hackintoshes and I wonder if I can create a computer with, that can run uh, Mac. And that was a mistake. Then I started looking at Windows machines and of course, a Windows machine versus a, a Mac, especially when you create a powerful machine, it's going to be probably a third or a fourth of the cost. And so that's what I did. I went out and bought this old Dell Precision. It's a T7610, 256 gigs of RAM. It's just this monster machine, 64 cores. Just super, super fast machine, but it's Windows. And I used to really dislike Windows. But now that they've come out with the WSL2 and, and you can run a Linux subsystem underneath the whole thing, and it actually works fairly seamlessly, at least in a code environment, it works pretty seamlessly. I've been very happy with it. The thing I found with Windows or PCs versus Macs is that Macs are pre-configured for optimized usage. Whereas Windows are not, like you get a PC and you have to configure all of these things. So much so that like I have a, a graphics card in my, and I know this is a little bit off topic, but I have a graphics card in my computer. A, uh, it's the 10, 1080 something. Anyway, there's an app that comes with it that you can use to optimize any game that you play for that graphics card. And it'll optimize the game prior to launching the game. So I find that so interesting. Whereas with Macs, there's so much given to you. You don't have to think about it. It's just there. So I think that's been a bit of a challenge getting the environment set up. But for all those listening who are curious about developing on Windows, it's there. I can be highly effective as a Ruby developer within Windows, probably nearly as effective as in with Macs. But I also believe that I get a lot better hardware for the money. So at the end of the day, I think I came out ahead. Nice. Have you, is there anything in particular that's stuck out as difficult on Windows? For you, with um, so with WSL two, it's basically two types of operating systems, as I understand, running under one, you know, under one computer. Because of that, the files are are different. Like file types are different. So to access files within your Linux subsystem is a little bit more complicated, a little bit slower. That's really the core of it. The other thing is, I think Macs are configured fairly well for, for out-of-the-box Rails development. There's a few things that you have to do in Windows to, to get it up and running. For example, one of the frustrating things for me is I have to like, every time my computer turns on, it fires off this script that runs in that WSL background that turns on, that basically starts Postgres and Redis. So I don't have to do that every time I open up a console. Other thing is that, you know, the Nate, like iTerm versus Windows terminal is like a billion times better. And so, yeah, uh, there's, there's some aspects of it, but, you know, for, for anybody using VS Code, it's definitely a first-class citizen in Windows. VS Code is, of course, owned by Microsoft. And VS Code is really becoming, I, I think VS Code is, uh, as soon as like people like you, Nate, are like long gone, I think that Vim is going to go away. And I think VS Code and something like that is going to really take over. I'm not wishing for your death. Vim will never die. <laughs> well, it'll never die, but but my gosh, I, uh, yeah, there's so much benefit you get from VS. I cannot cannot express how impressed I am with VS Code. The Microsoft evil plan is working on you. I was you know what? I was about to say he's going to do his thing. You you triggered him. You said Microsoft, and that's when Nate goes developers, 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 Microsoft and their plans. Uh, dude, you there is more reason to come down on on Apple than there is Microsoft right now. Look hey, at, whoa, uh, whoa. Hold on, hold on. Look at, first off, let, let's talk about GitHub, okay? So my experience with GitHub, I've had an intimate experiences with GitHub. Back in 2017, working with GitHub was a nightmare. As I understood it, there was a lot of internal turmoil at the time, just not a lot of great direction. You remember the scandal that happened with one of the uh, founders and, and the other founder just, you know, they sold and he, he took off. So once Microsoft took over and then Nat Friedman came in, we started seeing some serious improvements. The hiring of Devin Zugel is one of them. She's made a massive impact in open source and open source sustainability within GitHub. GitHub is actively monitoring Twitter 
I see Nat reaching out to people when they say, hey, who do I need to talk to at GitHub to make sure that they do this or we get this involved? And then Nat chimes in immediately and says, hey, this is a great idea. I'm going to talk to the team. Who does that, right? What, I mean, we're talking a $7.5 billion company where the CEO is reaching out to anybody on Twitter saying, hey, I hear you. Let's talk about it. I mean, I'm sorry, but they're, they're doing a lot more than what Apple's doing. A lot more. And if they win, they've earned it. Yeah, I guess to kind of add on to that real quick, I guess another plus for uh, Microsoft and their developers, developers, developers. I was pairing with Joel Hoxley yesterday because he's kind of been, we've been kind of doing like a weekly call ever since we did a podcast on here two episodes ago. And kind of just seeing how we're using components and things we're running into and struggles we're having and how we're solving them and this and that and how how I'm kind of thinking about it. And yesterday he noticed, I was like, he was like, why aren't you using this one thing? And I was like, I would love to do that one thing, but it doesn't have the ability to do... It was specifically with content areas. They had this thing where you can do a component and then have like subsections under it rather than just doing like a, a component do and then more components, more components. It, it's kind of like more integrated. And he was asking why we weren't using that because it's a cool feature. And I was like, well, I can't pass arguments to it. And if I can't pass... If the one time I need to pass arguments to it, that breaks the entire pattern. And I'm not like... I'm just going to like choose the other way at first. And 30 minutes later, we had a PR on U component to address that so that we could do that. So yeah. They, I, yeah. I like Apple. Microsoft is definitely doing more for open source right now. That's, that's not a question. Yeah, I will say, developers as well, I believe. Yeah, I agree with that for developers. They're, they're very developer focused. And, you know, in, in, you know, I poke fun at the developers, developers, developers stuff. But it's, it is true. But, and it's, they understand that, right? If they can attract the talent, it's the same thing Eric was talking about earlier. If they can attract the mindshare and the talent of developers, then they're the platform that products will be built for. And so that's really what they're, they're after. And, and they are providing the tools. Like you can't argue with great tooling, right? And so VS Code is, is a, a perfect example of that. And I would not recommend anyone try to start their programming career with Vim or some of these more obtuse tools, right? Use something that, that takes the, the friction out of, you know, removes the friction and lets you actually build interesting things faster. And tools like VS Code allow uh, newcomers to do that as well as experienced folks. So there's nothing wrong with that as a tool. So, I mean, even though we poke fun at it, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, I started using VS Code right when it came out and I, I've been on it ever since. I've tried to foray into other things and it's just, we just I keep coming back. If you're not following Andrew on Twitter and GitHub and all that stuff, you really, really should. He is, uh, Andrew's got that personality where he digs into things, understands them, and then makes that knowledge public. Those are the best kind of people. So I reached out to Andrew this morning and says, hey, how do I get my... VS code to actually make it so that I can autocomplete Ruby where the, you know, there's not a reference in the, you know, in the uh, cache already or whatever they have. And you showed me immediately and you showed me this awesome website where you could share your extensions and configurations. And I think that, yeah, so uh, I just, I, I kind of want to put you on a pedestal here a little bit and let people know, like you are one to follow and you are one to follow long term. I'm, I'm a, I'm a commitment. You're you getting memes too. That's right. It's yeah, not the, real offering. The nice thing is, you know, in the midst of Code Fund and Gitcoin and our missions as a company to sustain open source, really, our, one of our biggest accomplishments will be serving as a stepping stone to get Andrew hired over at GitHub. <laughs> I used <laughs> I to. Be my I don't ever want that to happen. It's not anymore. But yeah, you are a rising star, my friend. I appreciate it. I wouldn't be here without either of y'all, obviously. But. I mean, you guys are like, what, twice my age? Uh, minimum. Nate's like three times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, we have been going for a while. I think that's a pretty good discussion. You guys have anything else you want to say before we kind of wrap this up? Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on here. I, I know this is self-serving a little bit. You know, I really don't care if the listeners join CodeFund or not. That's not really why we do this. 
our goal is to fund open source and continuing to do so is uh, we're just going to continue to do it. But I'm very, very lucky to have both of you as, as friends and as partners with this company. It's rare, I think, that you get to start a company, have funding for that company, and work with your best friends. There's some magic that happens in that. And I think Nate and I, you know, people look at Nate and I, for a long time, they looked at us very similar in the code. But I think that those who are not programmers don't understand that developers have personalities that really determine how they contribute to projects. So for example, I'm very different than both of you. Very, very, very different than both of you. You two are very similar to each other. So I, I do see that there is benefit from, you know, by hiring multiple personality types within a company. Yeah, I agree. My, my daughter just ran off and I'm watching her. So I probably need to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's never great. Cool. Well, thanks for being on. And Ron wasn't feeling well. So um, thoughts. Hey, Ron, love you, man. Paul, thank you for being an incredible editor. We love you as well. Yeah, Paul is... Paul is the the bee's knees. I'm just trying to think of a non-curse word. <laughs> cool. All right, guys. We can call this a wrap like Christmas. All right. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Right. See you. Later. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.